the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today, as we begin the second day of this 40-day challenge, we're exploring how to live in hope. And if we live in hope, that means that we trust and obey and we invite others to join us. We trust and obey and invite others to join us. If you're following along with the outline, that's all written on here. And I hope that this makes sense. Would you say that out loud with me? Uh, We trust and obey and invite others to join us. One of the best examples that I know of in scripture is the first time the number 40 actually shows up in a significant way. And that is in Genesis chapters six through nine, the story of Noah and the worldwide flood. And you probably have heard this story since you were a little kid and you probably know that it rained 40 days and 40 nights because that's how long it took for there to get that much water over the planet. And that's what needed to happen to kill off all life as they knew it, to rearrange the land masses as they needed to be rearranged, and also to put that much petroleum and diamonds and all the other carbon-based stuff that's under this planet ever since. That's what it took to get all that down, all the fossils and everything else. It needed that much weight, that much stuff trapped really fast and held under a lot of weight for a long time. God knew this. And so that's it took 40 days and 40 nights for it to rain that hard. But it actually took a lot longer than that for Moses and his family because they spent over a century building this ark. And it was over a year after the flood itself ended, like the the rain of it ended, the storm part of it ended before they were able to land and then they had to rebuild the world. There's a lot of messy, dirty, seasick, frustrating, hard work. And in the center of it was these 40 days. But on one side of those 40 days, you've got an empty boat and a lot of people making fun of you because there's never been such a thing as rain before. And on the second day, at the end of the 40 days, at the end of the 40 days, you've got an entire world covered in water and only the people in that boat and everything they took in there with them surviving. Everything has changed in those 40 days. And that's what saved the world. You see this pattern throughout the rest of the scripture. But how does that apply to us? Uh, Here's what I want you to notice from this story. We'll unpack this in a second. Noah and his family lived proactively, not reactively. Proactively, not reactively. I actually don't know that much about an author named Annie Dillard, but one of my favorite quotes ever is from her. She says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. In other words, the choices you make today, the choices you made yesterday and the day before that, that's what your life is. It feels like sometimes we can just coast or that our choices don't matter or that there's so much going on that we have no control. We're not actually making choices. We're just surviving. But that's living reactively. To live proactively is to take responsibility for those choices. That's what it looks like to live in hope. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And here's my question to you this morning. Are you living reactively or proactively? Here's how to know one way or another. If you, a reactive choice is based just on your circumstances. People who live reactively, they see themselves as victims. They see themselves as just being tossed about like a boat on the waves, if you will. They, they, that's, that's how they live their life. Their, their primary motivator is usually fear. They're just trying to survive. That's all there is. But proactive people, their whole life is about purpose. 
It's not that they're unaware of their circumstances. It's not that they're naive or dumb. It's just that they know that those are just the details right now. There's something more important going on, and that's what they're about. They make their choices that way. They make their choices based on courage. It's not that they don't feel fear. Courage includes fear, but you do what needs to be done in the midst of fear. And they're not just trying to survive, they're obsessed with trying to make things better, to do what needs to be done, to keep what needs to be going, going. So are you reactive or are you proactive? If you're proactive, you are living in hope. If you're reactive, you're not. First Thessalonians 5 verses 2 to 3 is a wonderful piece I want to read to you, but that whole chapter, man, it's all about the awesome hope that we as Christians have. If anybody has a reason to live in hope, it's us. And our big hope, our big hope is the day of the Lord or the day Jesus comes back. That's what we're looking forward to in heaven and eternity. But what I want to spend most of the time on today is where the Bible spends most of its time. And that is that most of the hope that we actually have something to do about, what it means to live in hope, what it means to share hope with others, that all happens right in the here and now. The ultimate hope of Jesus coming back is the ultimate thing that we're looking for. But all the most, everything the Bible tells us about what it looks like to live in hope is about what happens here and now. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 to 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I just want to remind you one more time, 2020 is not the first time in history where people are obsessed with their safety. They're scared to death of something. And, and, and they're fighting for it. When, when everything is, it seems to be just falling apart, nobody trusts the government, nobody trusts anything that they used to trust. Are you with me? That's not the first time this has happened. It's just the details of what's happening right now. It's not the first time there's been a worldwide famine or worldwide disease or worldwide anything. This is how it happened. World War. Many of you in this room remember a world war. Some of you fought in it, I believe. This is just what happens. But if we live proactively, we we can overcome that. And if we're obsessed with peace and safety, we don't. Jesus himself talked about the story of Noah as a fact. And he said this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. Most of the things we are tempted to or told to put our hope in really is not where we need to be putting our hope. That doesn't mean that everybody else but Jesus is an idiot and none of the things you're being told or none of the things are important or none of them are true. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we need to make sure, as Jesus himself taught us, that our greatest hope is in God himself. Because listen, this will come back around in a second. God makes the odds obsolete. God makes the odds obsolete. And we are the people who have the light. We're not just stumbling in darkness, hoping to survive somehow like the rest of the world. We are what Paul calls the children of the light. 
And even throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea of hope in this life here and now being the driving force of the people who actually got something done and actually knew God and actually had relationships that mattered in this life. Here's a few examples. Psalm 25, verses 4 to 5. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 119, verses 19 and 30. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your loss. In other words, no matter what's going on around me, I know where my hope lies. That's what drives my decisions. The second thing that we do when we live in hope is we try righteous things with confidence. We try righteous things with confidence. And righteous things are the things that God tells us to do. They're the things that bring us back into contact with him and with each other. They're the things he wants done in the world. They're the things that are supposed to be the making the kingdom of God come on this earth as it is in heaven. And when we live in hope, no matter the circumstances, we try righteous things with confidence. Would you say that out loud with me? Try righteous things with confidence. See, hope is so much more than just wishing. When we say in English, we go, man, I hope, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or something like that. That's not the hope that the Bible is talking about. That's just a wish. Hope, real hope, is something that you believe in and you act on and you share it with others. You go, this is what needs done. This is how we're going to survive. This is the secret. And let me tell you a secret right now. Everybody knows what you put your hope in. They know whether you trust in God or not. Here's an example. If you walk down or if you see somebody drive by and they're wearing a seatbelt, okay, chances are they have some faith in that seatbelt. Or at least they have faith in if I drive by a policeman and I'm not wearing this seatbelt, I might get in trouble. One or the other, but there's a reason. And here's how you can tell that they drank that Kool-Aid. They're wearing a seatbelt. Are you with me in this? And if people, can, if you really put your hope in God, people can tell. And if you really don't, they can tell that too. There's evidence. When you live in actual hope, you do stuff. And no matter how scary or costly our choices may seem, we must relentlessly keep trying to accomplish God's will. When I was growing up, one of my favorite uh, comic strips is uh, Peanuts, still is. But I remember one particular series back then that was one of my favorites. It was where Snoopy would write and type books. And I think that came back around several times. But one particular one grabbed me because he was talking about the Bible. And one panel he, he, he typed in, um, a living dog is better than a dead lion, Ecclesiastes 9.4. And somebody said, uh, so what do you think that means? And Snoopy said, I, I don't know, but I agree with it. I think a living dog is better than a dead lion. So I, I, I believe that too, except I think he was missing the point. And the point leads us into another big kind of whirlwind tour of the Old Testament idea of hope. And that's what I'd like to share you, with you this morning. See, hope in the whole Bible, but especially in the Old Testament, they hadn't seen the Messiah show up yet. So they were always living in anticipation of the Messiah showing up. But their hope was all about the here and now. Ecclesiastes 9.4 actually says, 
Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a dog is better off than a dead lion. So again, Snoopy did miss the point, but are you following me? If you're alive, there's still a chance that something good could happen. You could do something and God could do something. Somebody else could do something. You still live in a state where good stuff could still happen. You could still live in hope. On the other side, in heaven, everything's perfect, but there's no more hope. You don't need hope. Does that make sense? Here, here, let's go on this whirlwind tour, whirlwind tour together. Proverbs 19, verse 18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. There's no guarantee that if we raise our children right, that they're going to do everything right. But there's hope if we discipline them. There's no hope otherwise. So you live in hope. You try. You do your best. Isaiah 38, 18. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Again, we know, since Jesus told us about eternal life and all the other things, we know that heaven's going to be amazing, but we won't have hope there anymore. Hope is for those who are still living, still surviving, still making choices, still expecting God to come through. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 13, is one of the most popular and widely printed parts of the Bible. You probably have a t-shirt or a mug or a little poster or a cross-stitch pillow or something with one or all three of those verses on it somewhere. It's, it's there. And it's beautiful out of context, but it's even better in context. I want to share both with you again this morning. This is central to the biblical concept of hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, that's just beautiful. That just is. But it's even better in context because Jeremiah 29 is God talking to his people as he sends them into exile in Babylon. He's telling them they're going to be there for 70 years and there's nothing they can do about it. They've used up their last chance. This is it. He disciplines them because he does have hope that maybe they'll get it right on the other side of that. And this is one of those seasons. It's not a 41, but you see a lot of sevens and tens and multiplies, multiplications of those as well in the Bible. This is 70 years. And he goes, on one side, you're rebellious and you've used up all your chances. I'm hoping on the other side, things will be different. Here's how to make that happen. Jeremiah 29 is all about how to make that happen. And the next verse after the ones I just read is God saying this, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. But there's more. Living in hope also means that you're a blessing even in that moment. You're blessing the people around you even in the darkest moments. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 7. God says, increase in number there. 
do not decrease and also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, God's dream for us, even in, sometimes especially in those 40 moments or those 70 moments, if you will, those times of growth and transition, God's hope is that we are blessed to be a blessing. That's always his plan. It's even more true in those moments. You read any story throughout the Bible, you see where God blesses people. There's a plan. There's a reason they have those talents, those opportunities, those moments, those situations, those relationships. We are blessed to be a blessing. And as Christians, it's even more true than it was in the Old Testament. Ephesians 4.4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10 also expounds on that. It says, For you, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you missed the series about the body not too long ago, I encourage you to go back and listen to that if, or, or read it somewhere else. Find that truth, but figure out what the Bible says about the body of Christ. So powerful. But once, once again, to live in hope is to acknowledge that our hope is really in Jesus, not in our ability to come through. But that truth is inseparable from the other truth that God created us and created us anew in Christ Jesus to do good works. He wants us to do things. We are blessed to be a blessing. Always, even in the hardest times, especially in the hardest times. The concept of hope in the Bible is an outward focused hope. It's not just a feeling that gets you personally through the day while you wait on things to get better. Hope in the Bible is the stuff that God gives his people to share the stuff that God gives his people to do. And to live in hope is to live that way. It's to bet everything on God and invite others to join us in that. Let's say that together. To, to live in hope means that we, everybody together, bet everything on God and invite others to join us. One more 40 story for you this morning, and we're going to wrap this up as, as, as just as practically as I possibly can because I really believe God is telling us as a church these things are true. But the second time that you see that 40 concept happen in Scripture is the story of Moses and Israel coming up to Canaan the first time. God had brought them out of Egypt. They'd seen the, the waters part. They'd seen them being themselves being delivered by God from slavery in Egypt in miraculous ways. They'd seen the Ten Commandments and all the miracles out there in the wilderness up to that point. But they get to the edge of Canaan, and Moses and Israel waste their chance to see all of their hopes fulfilled. They get caught up in doubt and fear and questions and trying to overthink things so much that they miss it completely. Joshua and Caleb are the only people who were adults then who end up making it into the promised land later. And the reason is because they had real hope. 
They actually believed in God, not in what was going on around them. And they acted on that faith and they shared that faith and they, they knew and they shared and they lived on this thing I said just a second ago. Listen, I'm going to say it again. God makes the odds obsolete every single time. They bet everything on that. The other people were not willing to. How many have heard this story before? You've, you've heard this one? This way, uh, at least a few people, good. But I want to zoom in because there's some important things in here, some mistakes that we all tend to make that, that, that we can't make. God's given us his word here. This should help us through this 40 season we're in right now. Numbers 13, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. Which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out. That's it. That's what God said to do. He said to send them in to see what he was about to give them. It's kind of like setting the presents out under the tree a little bit before Christmas morning. You with me? I, I want you to see what I'm about to just give you. That was the whole thing. But watch what happens by the time Moses actually gives this command to the people. Verses 17 through 20. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. Whether the men who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns did they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. I don't want to throw Moses under the bus. But he completely derailed the focus of that mission. Are you with me? And I'm raising my hand. How many of you guys have ever done that? Maybe meaning well. I have. That's what we tend to do in moments when we're stressed out and we're afraid and we're not sure how God's going to come through. We don't know the details and everybody's shouting stuff at us from the back seat as we are trying to drive. It freaks us out and we panic. We start asking all these other questions. And if we can think of all these details and all these things to check off of our list, we feel like really great leaders. We feel like, man, we are so smart. Look at all these details we thought up. Look at all these backup plans we've got to if God doesn't come through. Look at us go. But we've missed the whole thing. That's not living in hope. And watch what happens because Moses did this. At the end of 40 days, there's another 40, ready? At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. Listen, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Here's what you need to know about him. Some people say Anak. I say Anak. I don't care how you say it. Here's what you need to know. They were big dudes. They were giants. Not fictional, fairy tale, fill this whole room and pick me up with their little fingers like this kind of giant. These are just really great big, like an entire race of people built like Shaquille O'Neal. 
All right? They're just big people, powerful people. That's what they came back with. And that night, Joshua and Caleb tried to tell everybody, but remember, God makes the odds obsolete. But these 10 spies and even Moses all chimed in. They go, no, this is bad. And listen, here's what the people of Israel said that night. They cried, they panicked, and they wailed. And they literally said, you need to read this, Numbers 13 and 14, both of those chapters. In the middle of the night, they said, if only we had died in the wilderness rather than face death at the hand of these giants. So the next morning, they collectively decide they're not going to try. And God, for the second time, gets furious. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God had made all these promises to Abraham, to, and he kept all of his, but they broke all of his the whole way down. And when, when the Israelites did that golden calf thing, God actually went to Moses and said, listen, I'm done with these people. We're done. This covenant is over. We're going to start over with you and me instead of me and Abraham. And Moses begged on their behalf, please don't do that. Please don't do that. So God gave them another chance, and they got the second copy of the Ten Commandments. Does this sound familiar? Well, this happens again right here. God says, okay, that's it, Moses. I'm done. We're starting over. I'm done with these people. And Moses once again begs, and he says, no, God, for the sake of your name, don't give up on them. Because everybody knows they're your people, even though they're not acting like it. And if they fail, if, they, if, if things go really, really bad now, that's going to come back on you. And so God says, okay, all right. I'll give them one more chance. But it's not going to go unpunished. They spent 40 days looking around in the, in the place, but they did it wrong. I'm going to give them 40 years of wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness as punishment. They said, I wish that we had died in the wilderness. Well, you asked for it, you got it. Toyota, anybody remember that? Toyota's not in the Bible. I just added that in because it kind of goes with that phrase. But that's what God said. You asked for it, you got it. You're all going to die in the wilderness. Only your kids and your grandkids and Joshua and Caleb get to go in. But watch what happens. These 40 years that they spent in the wilderness... They completely changed. I mean, literally, it's a different group of people that go into Canaan. All of the people who made that choice die off, even Moses himself. And when they enter, they're being led by Joshua, not Moses. And when they get into, and, and all those 40 years, they're just counting up to 35 more years to go, 30 years to go, 20 years to go, 10 years to go. Here it comes. You with me? It's a completely different group of people that followed Joshua and Caleb into battle. That's what happens in these 40 times, in these seasons that the Bible symbolically and literally shows us where something had to do with 40. It's a time of pain. It's a time of transition. It's a time of a bunch of stuff, but something changes. Something significant happens. Things are different on the other side. And that's where why we're inviting you into these 40 days of prayer that will wrap up on Christmas. If you haven't got in yet, jump in now. Help us. We're praying, God, show us exactly what you want to change in us as we do this together. But that's what we're trusting. That's what we're expecting. The end of this story is amazing. Uh, you read it in the book of Joshua. And the first 14 chapters of Joshua take, we know, about 
five years to happen, the Battle of Jericho, Battle of Ai. We know that one of the ways we know that is from Joshua chapter 14 when Caleb goes to Joshua and he says, listen, I was 40 years old when we were sent in as spies. There's another 40. I was 40 years old then. Then we wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Now I'm an 85-year-old man. And we've pretty much taken Canaan. We've pretty much taken everything we're going to take, except that spot that God said he was going to give to me. Listen to this. I love this. Uh, by the way, let me show you this picture. That's how I picture old man, old man Caleb. That's the guy Campbell from the movie Braveheart. This guy, is, he's old, but he's tough. There's a scene in there where he gets shot up by a bunch of arrows. He just keeps on fighting. And that night, he makes him pull out the arrows, and he goes back into war the next day. That's how I picture Caleb. But again, it's not because he's just personally so tough, but because he knows that God makes the odds obsolete. Listen what he says to Joshua. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. He's like, you know what? I don't just want any place. I want where the giants live. I want the really big walls. Because I know it's not about how old I am or how tough I am or how strong I am or how great of fighters my family is. God makes the odds obsolete. I'm going to prove that. It's been five years. Can we do it now? Joshua says, yes. They go and do it. Wipe out the Anakites take over their land and all their fortified city. So what are you going to do? What are we going to do as a church? Are you going to live reactively or proactively? Are you going to trust and obey no matter what? Is the only question we're going to ask together, how do we get God's stuff done? No matter what, or are we going to waste time adding a whole bunch of details like Moses did? Are you going to try righteous things with confidence, no matter the circumstances, or not? Are you going to bet everything on God? Are you willing to sacrifice all the safety nets? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to just trust on God and believe that no matter what, no matter how legitimately scary and dangerous and terrible and awful and confusing anything ever gets that God is real and that God makes the odds obsolete. Will you live that way? Will you live that way? Will you live that way? Come on. Yes, we've got to. And I know it's scary and I know it's hard, but we've got to do that and we've got to invite others into that. There's one major thing I always ask you to pray in response to anything that we talk about up here is that you, whatever God is saying in your heart as we walk through his word together, you say, Lord, I will do that. This very specific thing is what I want to leave you with today. You might want to write this down, at least remember it, whatever you need to do. Ready? What we do, what we do in the 40 seasons, what we do in the 40 seasons is what either eliminates our chances to get where God wants us to go or it prepares us to go there. I'm going to say it one more time. 
What we do in the 40 seasons either eliminates our chances to get where God wants us to go or it prepares us to go there. We see this in the story of Noah. We see it very clearly in the story of Moses and the Israelites. Some of them chose not to trust God. They didn't get their hopes fulfilled. The other people spent 40 years preparing and God came through. Which group are you going to be? I hope and pray that together as a church that we're the people that are going to say, we're going to spend this 40 season that we are in, whether we like it or not, we're going to spend it preparing for whatever it is that God has for us on the other side. It's up to you. That choice is up to you. You can let it take you out of the game or you can let it prepare you to do whatever's on the other side. I hope it's that. And I hope you take the first step toward that right now as we stand and as we sing a song of commitment to God. The number 40 appears over a hundred times in scripture, and it almost always relates to a time of trial and testing. The flood took 40 days and nights. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Even Jesus took 40 days to establish himself after he was baptized. In the Bible, 40 represents struggle, self-examination, and transition. But it always ends in some kind of new life, growth, or beginning. In light of everything going on in the world, it has become clear to us that we are in such a season right now. So as this year comes to a close, let's take this time of struggle seriously. Examine yourself. Allow God to shape your heart. These 40 days will be over before you know it, and we can't wait to see what God does next.